0: Help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets work.com.
1: Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, here we are again. We are again. Again and again. Hundreds of episodes behind us now, and each one is fun. So today, we're not talking about what we usually talk about. We've been talking a lot about markets and planning. But we're going to take, I don't know, a little offshoot of that. It is planning based. Absolutely. We're going to talk about estate planning. And we've addressed some of the issues around estate planning in past episodes, but it just keeps coming up because let's face it, people keep dying. That happens. Sadly. So today we're happy to have a great guest speaker join us. Judd Blitt, that's Judd Blitt, a lawyer with Lindsay McCarthy, is joining us. And he's an expert in this area and estate litigation and whatnot. So Judd, welcome to the Free Lunch Podcast. Good to have you.
2: Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this. Just to kick off, Judd, tell us your story. Like, How did you end up where you are today? I
3: started working as a lawyer in 2009. And so basically, as soon as that happened, I started working in all areas of litigation. I was sort of a general litigation practitioner, civil and commercial litigation, and continued on through that path through the years, through different firms. Went through some different focus areas through that time. And in the last several years, have started to focus my practice more so on estate-related litigation, contentious estate matters, and found that it's been a really interesting and dynamic area that's been changing a lot and developing a lot. And as you mentioned, because of demographics, it's a growing area. That's a nice way of saying it, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. Like
1: <laughs> Because our population is aging, estate litigation is growing. Is that what you're saying?
3: it's going to come up more and more. And you're right, it's simply a function of people dying. And any sort of article you'll read about the shifting demographics, we're sort of approaching the greatest wealth transfer in human history over the next several years. And so inevitably, there's going to be issues that come up. There's going to be disputes. And we're going to be faced with a lot of really interesting issues and people sort of planning to transition their estates and what they're going to do have a lot to think about. So part of my job is to not only deal with estates as they come up or estate issues as they come up, but also to help some people on the planning side understand what some of the pitfalls end up being and where some of the disputes arise so they can help try and plan around that.
1: Well, I'm sure there's some very interesting stories that you've come across over the years. I mean, we've run across them, right, Greg? Like we've had a few estates go sideways for sure. for, for clients and their families and it's kind of like if you don't plan for it now, you kind of leave a mess, don't you, for somebody else to clean up?
3: Well, that's just it. Especially if we're talking about people sort of in the higher net worth brackets, there does have to be quite a bit of thought put into what's going to happen and who's going to be sort of in charge and making sure that it's an orderly distribution of whatever it is the wishes are. And one of the key things around that really is communication and I'll probably touch on this as our discussion goes on, but There's going to be instances where people kind of get taken by surprise perhaps about what happens with a loved one's estate. And that is one of the things that can lead to disputes and issues. People kind of get blindsided by things. So part of that planning process is to the extent possible, having open and honest communication with those around you, those who might expect to have some sort of interest in your estate and letting them know what to expect, potentially, and then they have time to really wrap their minds
2: around it. Let's say somebody failed to consult with you as they were setting up their estate. Shame. (laughs) Uh, What are some of the more common causes for estate litigation that you encounter?
3: Sure. Well, there's sort of two primary areas that are rife for dispute. And the first area sort of starts with shortly after death, when the will or the estate plan becomes broadly known to those who may have an interest. And so the issues that then come up, as I said, where there's things that come as a surprise, or there's people who are just generally upset with how the plan is and look for ways to try and get things to their advantage. And so A lot of disputes come up where the person passes, the will or the wishes get disclosed, and then there starts to be issues with, okay, well, when was this will made? Did dad or grandpa have capacity to make that will? So all these questions come up about whether the will was valid, validly done, whether it's fair or unfair. And so it's a whole ball of wax. The other sort of primary area that comes up and disputes arise is once you get past that stage is there's this whole other aspect of administration. And in larger estates, the administration can take some time. If there's lots of different kinds of assets or investments, things of that nature, or holdings, properties, things like that, it can take some time for the executor, the personal representative, to take possession of all those assets, get them sorted out, liquidate if necessary, and get everything distributed. So to the extent that the person that was chosen to handle all of that might not be the best choice of person to do that, or if it's taking a long time or not doing things according to how they should or not accounting properly to different beneficiaries and things like that. A lot of disputes can arise in the administration process to essentially trying to hold the executor to account for what they're doing, trying to move things along, get things wrapped up. And Fairly and unfairly, sometimes if you're a beneficiary, all you're looking at is a big pot of gold and you just want your piece of it. And it can be frustrating if things take time. Sometimes these matters are out of the executor's hands. So it's just, again, coming back to communication. So it's communication not only important for the testator, but also for the executor to say, Here's what's going to have to happen with the estate. Here's what I have to do. Here's the time it might take and sort of set some expectations early on. But certainly there are cases where executors are delinquent in their duties and it's very fair for beneficiaries to raise concerns, bring matters to the courts. And there's mechanisms in place to have executors removed and replaced where they simply are just not up to the task.
1: That must go over really well when somebody's being asked to be removed as executor. That's a warm, fuzzy feeling, isn't it?
3: I'm sure it's not the most welcome piece of mail they receive.
1: Or maybe that's what they want. Well, I was (laughs) just
3: going to say sometimes it might be a relief as well if they realize they're not up to the task or they've been put in a situation that they weren't necessarily prepared for because things can come up during an administration that are unforeseen as well what you might think is a simple estate at the beginning can become very complex as it goes on as well. Because people, while they're alive, and remember, when people die, it's not always on schedule. There might be things that were unfinished during their lifetime, title to properties that never got changed, title to accounts that never got changed, and things like that. So an executor can be put in a position of having to play a little bit of a detective and to figure out what exactly is going on with an estate
2: and how to sort it all out. So you've talked about some of the causes of litigation or the types of litigation you get involved in. So how do people avoid or minimize the chances of that? So for example, you mentioned okay was the deceased of proper mind or able to sign that will. I mean, I've signed wills. Are you in proper mind? Well, right? I have no idea. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so how would somebody know? I mean, how do you ensure that when you establish the will that all of those kinds of issues have been dealt with? So typically
3: speaking, when we're speaking about capacity, testamentary capacity. It's a very specific legal test, and it's not necessarily a medical one. So as lawyers who practice in this area, we're typically trained or we've come to understand what we should be looking for when someone comes to us to execute a will or to decide on an estate plan and then subsequently execute a will. We need to make sure that they're ticking certain boxes in terms of what they understand about their estate, what they understand about their family, the world of potential beneficiaries to their estate. And so basically from the very first meeting until the very last one, when they're signing a will, we're always conducting this analysis of, is this person capable? Do they have the requisite capacity to sign what they're signing? And so most good Lawyers that practice in this area are always doing that. So if there's a will that's been prepared by a lawyer, that's been witnessed in front of a lawyer, chances are that person had the requisite capacity to make that will. It's not always the case, of course, but it definitely gives a higher degree of comfort to those who are relying on that will or to the courts or whomever is looking at it. It really strengthens the presumption. There is a legal presumption of testamentary capacity. What we run into is situations where wills, because you don't have to have a lawyer to make a will, you can make a will on your kitchen table and put it in your drawer if you want to. But those, of course, are the situations that raise a lot of concerns later on down the road is what kind of frame of mind were they in when they wrote that? Did they have capacity at the time? And then that becomes a lot more tricky to figure out.
2: Well, and that raises questions. And we've run into this on occasion where there are deathbed wills redrafted or done in holographic form. I imagine those would be areas as well where there could be some contesting of the validity or the capability of the person to have done that?
3: Certainly. A lot of question marks come up in those types of situations. In some of those cases, there are also lawyers involved. And so typically, a lawyer brought in in a situation like that will be very much alive to those circumstances before signing off on a will will be doubly sure that that person had capacity at that moment. This could be a very long discussion about capacity, but just A brief thing about it, as I mentioned, which is it's not a medical thing, even though someone may have dementia or Alzheimer's or some other degenerative cognitive disease or some other medical issues going on. The issue of legal capacity is a time specific test. So even though that person may have a lot of medical issues going on, if they have a period of clarity of lucidity and they want to arrange their affairs, they can satisfy a legal test of having testamentary capacity. Sure. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Sure. That's
1: kind of like you say general cognitive what did you say general cognitive decline? Decline. To me that's stock picking, Greg. Oh, that's general <laughs> cognitive decline. Anyways, that's that way we were talking
2: about investments. That's for today. another show. Yeah. <laughs> now there's something called no contest clauses. Maybe you could just describe what they are and do they work?
3: So a no contest clause when we talk about Litigation, obviously, when we talk to people making estate plans and talk about pitfalls and and risks of litigation, there's certain individuals that will feel very strongly about not having their family members become embroiled in litigation after they die over their estate. And there's only so many ways that you can control people's behavior after you've passed. But one of them is called a no contest clause, and it's also sometimes referred to as a Sinatra clause because it was famously present in one of his wills. And what it basically says is that if anyone challenges my will after I die, they are automatically disinherited. <laughs> Interesting. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and very simplistically speaking, that's what it says. And to the answer of does it work? The answer is it depends, of course, but they do work so long as they're properly drafted. And so there's certain requirements that a testator has to be aware of when putting a clause like that in the will. There's pretty good precedent out there now for no contest clauses that will pass judicial muster in terms of being upheld. But it's important to remember that what the no contest clause doesn't do is it doesn't guarantee that there will be no litigation, but it provides a really good deterrent It raises the stakes for someone who's thinking about maybe challenging a will or a part of a will to really take a long, hard look at what they think their prospects for success are, because the way it works is that it's not automatic. it's You don't lose your inheritance the minute you file a claim to challenge a will, because in practical effect, if you're challenging a will on the basis, for example, of incapacity, if you're successful then that will is invalid. And of course, in that case, the no contest clause is invalid. And so it's not operative. But if you're unsuccessful, then it for sure works and you're out of there. Like I said, as long as it complies with certain requirements, one of which is that you can't negate the effect of legislation, for example. So there's legislation that requires proper support to be given for dependents or spouses and things like that, family maintenance and support, and you can't contract out of those things. Within certain parameters, they are permissible and they can be
2: effective. Sounds like taking all those techniques, you know, that you use with your kids when they're growing up and taking it right to the deathbed. Yeah. If you do this, yeah. you're in trouble. You'll
1: get a timeout from my estate. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's what I say. They're not for everybody,
3: but there are certain people in certain circumstances where you obviously, you have some insight into what people might get up to after sure. it's all said and done. Yeah, this
1: must be like for a complex estate where, You see that. I ran into something a few years ago where somebody I was talking to went to their grandfather's funeral and there was another family there to which the grandfather was the grandfather. Yes. (laughs) I assume there was a no contest will drafted in that circumstance because very complex.
2: Well, and it gets to another question and that is like, what if you deliberately want to exclude a family member from the will? I mean, can you do that? And how successful is that strategy if you just decide, okay, this person does not deserve to get any of my inheritance?
3: That's a really good question. And in Alberta, generally speaking, you can do that. The principles are different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. For example, in BC, the rules are different. The legislation allows a court to change the distribution in a will where it meets certain criteria of being unfair essentially where you're not providing appropriately for family members and things like that. So that's different there. So that's something to be aware of. But in Alberta, there is a lot of deference and respect given to testators wishes. And you are free to dispose of your estate as you wish. As I said, within certain limitations, there is some legislation that governs what's to happen as far as dependents and spouses go. But if you want to completely exclude one son or daughter or what have you, you might have your reasons for doing so. You can absolutely do that. And there's no real explanation necessary to do that. It might be advisable. To put an explanation in, not necessarily in the will, but somewhere to have an explanation made for why that was done. Certainly, if you're doing your will with a lawyer, you'll have given a reason for doing so, and that'll be somewhere in the records. But yeah, the way it works in Alberta is that those types of wishes are respected, and there's no law or legislation that says everybody gets a piece, and it has to be within a certain range. And I've seen it happen, and certainly it makes people unhappy. And it can very much lead to litigation. So that sort of takes me back to one of my original points, which is communication is really important in these types of situations because quite often these things will come as a surprise and lead to litigation. And litigation, it serves a very important function, but typically in these sort of knock them out, drag them out fights, there really is no winners. The fees can get pretty exorbitant Because these litigation takes time, it takes a lot of work, a lot of effort, and depending on the value of the estate, everyone could be pretty much walking away with nothing at the end of it. So you want to really try everything you can before getting to litigation because it's
2: generally not a winning proposition. Well, you've also identified just this is a minor but probably important factor, and that is people move around the country a lot. My own mother passed away in Alberta with a BC will. It sounds like what you're saying is like if you move around, you should execute a new will in wherever you're living because you may be subject to different rules depending on where the will gets probated.
3: That's exactly right. So that's definitely something to be kept in mind. And it's a really important point that you should generally be, if not updating, at least thinking about your estate plan every couple of years every so often, and especially when there's been some kind of significant change in either your life circumstances or your financial circumstances or anything like that. And for example, one of the big issues that comes up in terms of a lot of the primary causes of litigation and one that's becoming more and more prevalent is in situations of mixed families. So second marriages, things like that. And life happens and people, circumstances change and not everyone thinks about going back and looking at their will again. Situations can happen both ways, where there's a new family, a second family, but the will only talks about the old family. Or when there's a new family, there's a new will, but there hasn't really been much thought put towards original old family. So that can cause a lot of conflict as well, because people start getting left out and Of course, there's a lot of hard feelings that can come into play when people talk about new relationships and things like that. So those are commonly things that lead to a lot of issues and disputes.
2: What happens? We've run into this on occasion when people have investment accounts with us, registered plans such as RSPs or RIFs or tax-free savings accounts, and we generally suggest it's a good idea for them to name a beneficiary. Obviously, if there's a spouse, there's a significant tax advantage to naming a spouse as a beneficiary of a registered plan. But what happens if there is a disconnect or a disagreement between a named beneficiary on an account like a registered plan and beneficiary designations in a will? Does one of those take precedence over the other?
3: The way those types of instruments work is that when there's a named beneficiary on an investment instrument like an RSP or something of that nature, those pass completely outside of the estate. They do not form part of the estate at all. The only way that they would form part of the estate is if the designated beneficiary on those instruments is the estate. That can be a very effective way of estate planning that should be looked at in terms of those types of investments is how things can flow through or not through the estate. Because as I said before, estates can get complicated and can take a while to administer. If there's ways to... Avoid that and make things smooth a bit more of a smooth transition where you know it it wants to go to a specific person or persons. That's absolutely a great way to make that happen. Is just directly name that beneficiary, and it's not too often that it happens that there's a dispute necessarily between beneficiaries in a will and beneficiaries under those types of investments. It can happen, of
2: course, but there's really very little that can be done about that. So one of the other ways, because non-registered accounts or investment accounts that are not RSPs or tax-free savings accounts in Canada anyway, I'm not sure if you can in the US, but in Canada, you cannot name a beneficiary of a non-registered account. So one of the planning techniques that a lot of people will use will be to put the account in a joint name with possibly one child out of several children. But the concept being, well, we'll put it in a joint name. It won't be involved in probate, it won't be part of the estate, it'll pass directly to the other account holder, but the will may specify that those funds are meant to be shared among multiple beneficiaries. So in that case, and I'm wondering if there's been any court precedents in that regard as to which then would take priority, the joint account that was made joint strictly for estate planning purposes, or the will?
3: Yeah, that's where it starts to get tricky for sure. The way that the law operates in those types of situations is when there's a transfer either into a joint ownership or even just a direct transfer of cash or property or anything like that to a family member, unless you can prove that it was a gift, a straight out gift. There's a presumption of a resulting trust, meaning that that person holds those funds or that account in trust for the person who had it. So that can definitely lead to the situation where the estate says, no, that's not your money, that's estate money. You were placed on this jointly for convenience or what have you, but it might not necessarily be effective in the way that the person intended to activate that part of the estate plan. You would require some more specific and clear advice on whether or not that's actually going to achieve the objective that you want it to.
1: The way I think of that is that somebody gave somebody some back of the paper napkin tax planning advice and said you should make your son or daughter joint on your non-registered account to avoid paying tax or probate fees in some
2: provinces, things like that.
1: But what they don't realize is that the minute you make that a joint account, it's a deemed disposition. So there could be tax collected for the day that it
3: was made joint and then it complicates the estate is what you're saying that's right. It's a whole ball of wax that you should be very careful of. And as long as you're clear on the potential consequences and you have good reason for doing it, in some cases there's good reasons for doing it, then it can be done for sure. But you're right. There's a lot of things to be aware of when doing something like
2: that. It seems to be that the easy one is when husbands and wives have joint accounts because if one passes, it'll pass to the other anyway. Correct. Typically. Yeah. In between those situations, spouses, it's
3: very different
2: being joint title on a home,
3: joint accounts and things like that. That's commonly understood to be a proper estate planning tool. The house just goes to the wife. All you have to do is file an affidavit of surviving joint tenant and you solely own the house. You solely own those accounts and that's not part of the estate.
2: I have one more question that deals with you must run across high net worth clients who are planning to leave sizable estates to their kids. And in many cases, the kids, maybe they're in their 20s or 30s. And the concern is that, well, if the kids are married and there's a marriage breakdown, that somehow the assets that have been grown and amassed by the family will get distributed outside the family because of a marriage breakdown. So how do people plan for that? How do they set up their estate such that their wishes for their wealth to be passed directly along their their lineage? How do they do that?
3: There's a lot of ways you can address that. None of them are necessarily perfect, but the most common one is to do it by using trusts, set up testamentary trusts that have certain terms. And there are people far more intelligent than I that do that type of planning. It's a very effective tool to protect wealth, protect assets, and make sure that it's gonna go to who you want it to go, but it lets you control it in a way that say okay well how much is it going to go and when and you can attach certain terms to those trusts but as i say they're not perfect in the sense that they can't be perpetual they're not going to exist forever there's only so long that you can actually control what happens with the funds or assets in those trusts but they are very effective to address those concerns
2: we should probably well i think we should i think here. we should wrap up i know we could probably talk on For hours. Wait, Greg, I got one question for you. Yes. Would we be recommending Judd
1: and Lindsay McCarthy to our listeners for all things legal? Of course we would. Of course we would. There's a good people at Lindsay McCarthy, and we appreciate you taking the time, Judd, to be one of those good people and to come on this show and do this with us.
3: It's my pleasure. It was really fun being here. and glad to have the conversation.
1: Well, now you don't get to go away yet. We got a quick speed round for you just for
2: fun. Okay. Okay. so, So, Greg, where are we at? Question one. What do you do for fun when you're not working and litigating estates? (laughs) In the very small amount of
3: time that I have when I'm not working and litigating estates, and I do spend quite a fair amount of time with my kids. I have two young kids, six and eight. And so they're at that age where we can actually sort of share interests and have fun together and spend a fair bit of time doing that. And beyond that, I'm a big music guy. I spend a lot of time listening to collecting and thinking about music and audio
1: fidelity and things that are extremely nerdy what kind of music what's your favorite type of music
3: it really runs the gamut i would say the core of it would be more along jazz soul funk and things sort of in those veins
2: cool you're an audiophile so are you doing this on vinyl that's right okay yeah ah yeah, a bit of a purist should never have got rid of all my vinyl records i just started collecting records again just
3: last year i think it's cool Any books you're reading right now? Are you a reader? I try to be a reader. It's tough. And I spend so much of my working day reading. When I get home, I try and do a little bit less of that. But currently on my bookshelf, geez, I'm going to forget the name of it now. It's called A New History of Civilization, I think. You're keeping it light. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's, I don't know, somehow I attract myself to books a thousand pages or more. But this one, it's been quite interesting. It covers questions about how we understand prehistory and civilization and and what forms civilization took in sort of these areas of human history that we really haven't had a proper understanding of because all we have is an archaeological record and basically just bones and things. And what do we know about how those societies functioned? And there's this common misconception that they're all savages and had no form of societal order. And then these two very intelligent researchers have sort of turned that understanding on its head. And so I'm only about a couple hundred pages into this. So I'll let you know maybe on our next podcast. Well, next time. Yeah. yeah, we'll have you back and you can
2: do a book review for <laughs> That's us. Right. Yeah. yeah, What about when the kids are in bed and everything is quiet in the house? Any shows you're binging or watching these days? Oh, sure. As alluded in
3: my nerdy answer to the music question, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to other entertainment as well. So I've been very much into the Star Wars series that have been put out. And then generally things that are kind of depressing and dystopian. I don't know why, but. (laughs) All right.
1: Have you watched the series Succession? I have. Is this just part of your life? Like, do you watch that and go, yeah, those are future clients.
3: I rub my hands together, hoping for the day that the Roy's walk through my door. <laughs> <laughs> that's good.
2: That's good. Well, we should let Judd get yep. on with his day. You bet. Yeah. We really appreciate you spending the time, Judd, and hopefully you'll allow us to have you back and pick up the discussion on how to avoid estate litigation.
3: Yes, for sure. It's been fun. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks. Till next time. You bet.
0: Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. 2022.